Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. Well, I have a couple of real fundamental problems with the idea of a wealth tax. Practically, it just hasn't worked. Uh, lots of people have tried this, especially in Europe. In France, for example, they gave up and they basically calculated over the decades. They spent more money trying to actually collect the money from people than they uh, actually collected. But it doesn't work. It, it's like we went back to earlier, this idea that if we just mail checks to everybody, that will create economic growth. Well, if, if it was that easy, every, you know, there wouldn't be any poor countries in this world. Everybody would do it. Not only is it easy, it's fun. Welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. Today we are speaking with Philip Cross. And Philip Cross is a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. In addition to that, he spent 36 years at Statistics Canada. We're going to be talking about minimum wage policy. We're going to be talking about poverty. And we're going to talk about wealth creation. And he joins us now to discuss all of those. Philip, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure, Danielle. Good to be talking to you again. So let's begin by by talking about the the approach to take to poverty because I know it's interesting. We often associate uh, poverty studies with more left wing think tanks, and maybe it's because they've got quite different solutions to how to address poverty. How do you come at the issue of poverty alleviation? Maybe put put a framework for us so that we so that we can go through the topics one by one. Well, I think the whole debate about poverty alleviation got off the rails during the great financial crisis. Uh, there, there was a suspicion with the Occupy Wall Street movement and so on that uh, a very small percentage, the famous 1%, were garnering all the money. And in this zero-sum view of the world, if some people are, are getting more money, then inevitably the other 99% of us were getting less. Uh, this is obviously you know, a, a very uh, erroneous view of the world. Uh, the 1% were not getting that, taking that much money. It ignores economic growth. We do not live in a zero-sum world with technological change and economic growth. It should be possible for all sectors of the economy to, to grow. Uh, but as I say, you know, it, once it got off the rails, it, it seemed to stay off the rails. The good news is that, uh, you, you know, you could blame, or some people anyways found it easy to blame capitalism uh, and income distribution for the great financial crisis. That's not the case for the pandemic. The pandemic was clearly had nothing to do with capitalism or socialism or anything like that. Uh, this, this was not related to economic systems. It was a virus that, however it got out of China, it did and circulated around the world. And the question then becomes, how are we gonna recover? Uh, and in fact, what the pandemic seems to have shown is that a lot of governments, especially the Canadian governments, actually floundered quite badly in their response. Uh, they, they didn't handle the pandemic well. They relied too much on lockdowns. Uh, they hurt the economy unnecessarily. They blew up deficits too much. So maybe young people will look at that and look at the, the behavior of, and meanwhile, by the way, I should also mention that it was private sector innovation in particular vaccines coming from pharmaceuticals that showed the way out of this. So hopefully that uh, this, strong pro-government bias we've seen over the last 10 years 
will actually be slowed down the pandemic and young people will reevaluate the respective roles of government in, in business. Well, I live in hope, and we'll talk about why that should be the conclusion. But I think for a lot of people who were receiving the $2,000 per month Canada emergency response benefit, or for those who had 75% of their wage subsidized through the Canadian emergency wage subsidy, I wonder if they came to a different conclusion. I wonder if they've come to the conclusion that you need government to be able to provide a basic level of support. And I, I wonder if, if there's any analysis that as we're looking forward to seeing some of the effects that those policies might have had, what, what are the kind of things that we should be looking at to see if they actually had a perverse result? Because I think it'll lead into our discussion about minimum wage as well. Well, you're quite right. I mean, you know, and let's not forget, by the way, that uh, all students in this country basically got $5,000 last summer, uh, pretty much irrespective of their economic circumstances. So uh, a lot of people, you know, frankly, did well in, in this pandemic and the money wasn't well targeted. And that's one reason, for example, why we saw the savings rate blow through the roof. We weren't helping people put groceries on the table. We sent people so much. It was more than they needed. Uh, so a lot of it ended up in savings. We weren't supporting economic growth. Uh, we were fueling the booms in stock markets and in the housing markets and so on. So a lot of it was poorly targeted, but I, I think, you know, I, I can't believe people are so stupid as to think that uh, economic growth is as easy as government's mailing checks to everybody. If that was the case, there wouldn't be a poor nation on this earth. So I, I mm -hmm. think people quite quickly will realize this is not sustainable. This is not a, uh, this is not how prosperity and, and economic growth are created. Uh, and in fact, uh, the large deficits and the future tax increases that they promise actually will slow growth over the longer term. I think I think this is an important conversation because I don't know if people know how wealth is created. And so we're we're going to have to to walk through that because um, I may I wonder if that may, maybe we should start there because I think there is this sense now that wealth is created when governments print money and cut checks. And when people have money in their pocket to go out and spend it, then it comes back to government in the form of increased taxes for a whole from a whole variety of, of sources. I think that that may be one of the prevailing views out there, because that's what we've seen governments around the world do. Let's maybe go to a more traditional view of how wealth is created and, and walk through that just to see why it is that it's not sustainable to just keep on printing money and, and delivering money and checks to, to individuals. Yeah, well, unfortunately, prob you know, a lot of people out there, they only take one economics course. And in that course, they learn that GDP equals the famous equation is consumption plus investment plus uh, government spending plus exports minus imports. I call it the most dangerous equation in economics because it creates the idea that if you increase one of these variables, in particular government, that that automatically lifts GDP. And that tells people that you know more government is good. What it doesn't tell you is is that what what are the long term determinants of growth? Mm -hmm. I mean, I worked at Statistics Canada in in the national accounts for the longest time. C plus I plus G plus X minus M is a great way to measure the economy. That's how we measure the economy on a quarterly basis. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a good way for studying how the economy grows in the long term. There are six other ways of adding up GDP. 
One of them, for example, is, uh, and in the longer term, the, the equation that works is the, the inputs of capital and labor and their productivity, and that equals GDP. And that's the longer term way of thinking about GDP. And in fact, the sources of growth in the long term and the short term are polar opposites. We know, for example, that um, printing money and stimulating the economy, that can work for a very short period of time, but it leads to very negative effects on the economy. Uh, and in particular, it can actually depress business investment in the longer mm -hmm. term. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, the way people think about the economy in the short term and the long term, we've actually got it completely backwards. And a lot of things that work in the, in the short term actually worsen the economy in the long term. And we don't make this distinction when we teach people this simple equation about the economy. We not enough economic professors are, are saying, well, unless you're measuring the economy, if this is Canada or unless you're thinking about the economy in the very short term, this is actually not a very good way of thinking about the economy in the long term. It's so interesting, as you were talking about that equation, you were taking me back to one of my early economics courses and and the graphs that you would draw about providing the government stimulus and how many jobs it would create and so on. And I think that that's maybe part of it is that there is a, a paradigm that says that, I, I mean, I, I think Nixon, didn't Nixon say we're all Keynesians now? The, the yeah. idea that you do want to put money into people's hands so that they spend. I mean, I think intuitively that kind of makes sense. If you give $2,000 to somebody, it allows them to go and buy groceries and go retail shopping. And then that grocery store owner and that retail shop owner, they're able to buy products, which then go to a wholesaler who's able to also procure some of the raw materials. So I can understand why there is this notion that by giving money directly to people, it ends up creating this virtuous chain that ultimately results in more growth. But where's where's the missing part of that theory? What it, what is missing in that analysis that that shows that in the long run you end up with more problems? What's missing is its exclusive focus on demand, and it doesn't look at how the economy supplies the goods that are in demand, and the supply of goods comes from things like business investment and, and firms creating a, their uh, and augmenting their productive capacity. And by the way, if firms in Canada are domestically are competitive, those products are going to be supplied by our importers and uh, we're going to lose our competitive position and all that demand you create is going to end up enriching producers in other countries. So what's missing in all that is, is the supply and the competitiveness of the economy. Um, so that's the short answer to that. Let me let you continue on that vein, because during the election campaign, there was a, mm -hmm. a bit of controversy because um, the, the the liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, said that he mm -hmm. didn't spend much time thinking about monetary policy. And I think those who spend a lot of time thinking about monetary policy were a bit agog at that, especially since mm -hmm. we've been looking at inflation numbers. We're knowing that the Bank of Canada has to has to set interest rates based on what they see there. And it seemed like there was quite a bit of a disconnect. But I wonder if you can talk mm. a bit about it, because you alluded to it, because you alluded to it. People too much money, and it goes into bank accounts, and it goes mm. chasing after too many goods, and there's not enough supply, you end up with some some other uh, big problems. So, so talk to me a little bit about, about uh, the the approach that we're seeing on monetary policy and why it does matter when we're talking about the the whole context of growth in the economy and then it will, we'll get into well the impact it has 
on on poverty. Yeah, well, monetary policy is a very good example of a policy that only has short-term um, implications. Monetary policy is what's called a stabilization tool. Uh, when the economy is hit by shocks like the Greek financial crisis, like the pandemic, like the oil price shock in 2015, the quickest way for the government to respond is through monetary policy. We adjust interest rates, we adjust the exchange rate, and that gets some of the automatic stabilizers in the economy going. The problem is monetary policy doesn't work over the longer term. It doesn't affect any of the fundamental determinants of the economy, particularly on the supply side. It doesn't affect the supply of labor. It doesn't have an impact on business investment. It doesn't affect innovation of productivity. Those variables all reflect other dynamics in the economy. And in fact, what monetary, if you rely too much on monetary policy, and I'm, I'm quite concerned that over the last 10 years, we've become addicted to low interest rates, for example, you end up putting all the money in the economy goes into an area like the stock market and it creates a bubble or it goes into the housing market and creates a bubble. And not only is, is that unhealthy for the economy over the long term, it can create real problems. When bubbles burst, you can end up with things like the great financial crisis, the banking mm -hmm. crisis, uh, because you end up creating, people have a lot of bad debt. When that debt goes bad, it can create a lot of problems for your banking and, and financial institutions. So that's a very good example of where over-reliance on short-term stimulus to the economy can actually hurt the economy in the longer term. The short-term and long-term dynamics of economic growth are quite different. And, you know, I've been quite concerned that we've become exclusively reliant on pump priming from both government spending and low interest rates. And we're relying exclusively on that. And we've been doing that for 10 years now. And we've been ignoring, while we've been doing this, we've been ignoring the long-term drivers of growth, like business investment, like innovation. Uh, you know, this country used to have some of the major, uh, you know, world-class corporations. We don't have that anymore. And we're not talking about that. Instead, we talk exclusively about Go, let's have more government spending. Let's have lower interest rates. We don't create, talk about how do we create a innovative, dynamic economy, a innovative, dynamic, create firms that are world class on, on the global stage. That's what we have to be talking about. Oh, and we're going to talk more about that. I, I wanted, One of the connections that you drew in one of your articles that I hadn't considered is that because of this uh, overstimulation, because of the drive up of savings, investments, housing prices, is actually creating a dynamic where now governments are looking at those inflated prices and talking about wealth taxes. And so you're, you're seeing sort of a creation of a bubble that then now is going to have a a fiscal policy response to it by by potentially raising taxes, and we'll talk a bit more about that. But before I leave this topic of of the impact of the low interest rates, just because we want to try to connect this to how people experience it on a on a daily basis, I want to I want to I want to deal with both aspects of it. First of all, the aspect of inflation. When you saw the report that we had a three point seven percent in inflation in July. What does that practically mean in eroding a person's purchasing power? It, it seems like a small amount of money. Um, we are hearing from the various governors of various central banks that it's only temporary because we did have a disruption in the supply chain. It's not permanent. No need to panic. Are you are you panicked when you see that kind of number? Or do you think we need a few more quarters to be able to, to see whether or not it's going to be a, a permanent ongoing rise in rates or if it is just a temporary one? 
for the moment, I'd give the bank and central banks the benefit of the doubt of that. Now, it is a little disturbing that these uh, inflation numbers we're seeing in both Canada and the U.S. were well above what central banks expected. So, you know, the, the, their models of how the whole recovery and uh, is going to unfold obviously has problems. So uh, when they talk about that, they're uh, they think it's transitory. You know, it's they've been wrong before. Mm. However, you know, the one solace I take is when I look at wages, I, I see the underlying trend of wages is still purring along at about 2%. That people, even with the shortages that we're seeing everywhere in the economy, it's not showing up in wage rates. And until it shows up in wage rates, I wouldn't be too concerned that it's becoming embedded in expectations and in the, the longer term dynamics of, of inflation. Uh, but as I say, you know, my goodness, you look at uh, commodities, you look at the housing market and, you know, you, you can't say there isn't inflation. There's lots of inflation in certain markets in our economy. And uh, that has a lot of risks attached to it. As I talked about, housing market, housing market bubbles always have a risk attached to them. Never mind about the generalized price level. Uh, whenever you have a housing market bubble, it's it's a concern. If it pops in mm -hmm. the wrong way, you can get a lot of damage to your financial system and you can end up depressing growth for a very long time, as we saw in, in uh, particularly in the United States for years after 2009. So you want to be very careful how you handle um, asset price increases, uh, never mind generalized inflation. You, but you the some... short answer is for the moment, I'm not concerned uh, or I'm not panicky, but I, I'm certainly keeping a very close eye on it. And I'm, I'm sure the Bank of Canada is too. You, you drew some really important um, uh, facts together for for me that we have to be watching whether wages are increasing because that's, that's what creates that spiral. If if employee groups and we'll see it, I suppose, with union collective bargaining agreements, if they think that there's going to be those ongoing uh, rises, they're going to ask for more in wages, which means the private sector is going to ask for it, and that's when you you can create that spiral. So thanks for connecting those so that I know what I should be watching for. But the other side of it too is that if we do get in that position where because we're creating that spiral, the, the bank normally responds by increasing interest rates. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got a situation where you have an inflated home value and you're, uh, you've are you got a, a large mortgage on it, a lot of people can't handle the notion that their interest on their mortgage would, would, would rise even one or two or three percentage points. And so it's almost maybe, it's almost a political problem that we face now that rates have been too low for so long creating this problem. But my goodness, the the political challenges of, of trying to unravel it or unwind it or roll it back become really complicated. So I don't know if you have some some thoughts on if you were advising the, the governor of the Bank of yeah. Canada, how do we get back to a more normal interest rate environment without creating a catastrophe of of, uh, of a problem in the housing market? Well, actually, and not just the housing market, it'd be a catastrophe for government finances too, because very quickly, when you start raising interest rates, this debt is going to become unsupportable. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, that's... Uh, that that really gets to the heart of this conundrum we're currently in is that we have taken on so much debt during this pandemic, particularly in the uh, in the government sector and also households in the in the housing market, that it wouldn't take a very sh sharp increase in interest rates to be problematic for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, though, the Bank of Canada make, has made it very clear before and during this pandemic that their job is to uh, is to manage 
interest rates for the long-term well-being of the economy. It's not their job to bail out governments for making difficult choices. It's not their job to support the housing market indefinitely. Mm. If you got into this housing market, if you bet the house, as they say, on house prices going up uh, forever, that's at the end of the day, that's that's your decision, and you have to live with the consequences of it. And the Bank of Canada, if if you know, we just talked about it, if inflation starts to become more embedded in wages and in expectations, the Bank of Canada's job is to fight that type of inflation and they'll do it by raising interest rates and you know perhaps they didn't warn people enough uh, that's the one thing i would criticize the bank about is that they they should have told people that you know interest rates are not going to stay low forever uh, and they should have warned governments that you know it's we're not going to be we're not going to keep interest rates low forever and you have to be ready to make hard decisions uh, and instead, you know, in the very short term, yeah, they told everybody, don't worry, be happy, uh, interest rates are zero. And they didn't warn them enough, I don't think, that, that this, is not a sustain this is not sustainable for a very long period. You know, the, the only uh, warning I think that I remember getting was the notion that we were going to move to a stress test, that they were going to test new mortgage renewals on the basis of rates being mm -hmm. slightly higher. But boy, there was a lot of political pushback on that one. And so it, it explains a little bit why there's this tension between political decisions and, and good sound monetary yeah. management. Let, can you deal with one other aspect of it? Because I think it's important for us to, to deal. You, me, you mentioned what could happen in the housing side and housing price inflation. But what has happened in, in the stock market? I, I was uh, very surprised because I, I watched it uh, crash at the beginning of COVID, just like anyone else, I was astonished at how quickly it rebounded and that we continue to see record growth in the stock market. Maybe maybe you should tell us whether some of those gains are, in your opinion, a bit illusory as well, and whether there's some, some kind of danger that that also represents an asset bubble. Because as we're talking about wealth, and most people have their wealth in their homes and their, and their pension assets, th this, could be, th this could also be another major impact on them. The stock market I'm a little less concerned about than housing uh, because people in there, you know, that's not the average person. You know, these are presumably people who know what they're doing and they're aware of the price earnings ratios and the risk involved and so on. Whereas in housing, you know, it's it, it's much more uh, people who don't have expertise in the area. I mean, obviously, a lot of the, what we saw in housing, as the Bank of Canada admitted, was not normal. It was crazy. Uh, some of the, the bidding and you know people offering two three hundred thousand over list prices and price wars and all that type of thing that concerns me there seemed to be a lot more hysterical you know irrational exuberance behavior in the housing market than in the stock market not that there are there shouldn't be concerns about the stock market as well but as i say i think there's there's a much more likely that uh a lot of people who didn't know what they're doing were getting into the housing market and they're going to get burned. By the way, I should mention too that Christy Clark, who uh, the former premier of BC, I thought had a really good insight into the problem that housing market bubbles present uh, during uh, after the Vancouver market blew through the roof in 2015. And she said, you know, basically she said, everybody knows that the market is unsustainable, that price levels... But what can we do about it? You know, that it's pricing five, ten percent of young people who are trying to get into the market. They can't get into the market. But she said, if I do something, 
then I'm taking wealth away from the, you know, the established middle age, middle class people. They're making a lot of money on this. And that creates a real problem for politicians. So, you know, if you, uh, so that's why she basically said, you know, you have to kind of stand back and let these things play themselves out. It's very difficult for politicians and, and regulators to step in. Uh, it's called in the um, in the market. Uh, Alan Greenspan was faced with this conundrum when he was talking about the stock market and irrational exuberance back in the late 90s. And the debate has always been in central banks. Do you lean or do you clean? Do you lean against the price and uh, uh, price appreciation you're seeing, which you strongly suspect is a little bit crazy? Or do you just stand back and say, let nature take its course and we'll clean up the mess after it happens? And, you know, obviously going into when the housing market bubble in the U.S. came along, uh, the central banks clearly took the, the clean aspect and they didn't lean against the price increases. They just said, we're going to we'll clean up the mess after it happens. And that seems to be basically what their attitude continues to be. They're not leaning against, they're not taking little actions, tightening regulations or raising interest rates a little bit to lean against this price appreciation we're seeing in, in various asset markets. They're basically saying, well, if, if something bad happens, we'll clean up the mess afterwards, but we're not going to interfere with it. I think it's a it's a it was a it was did not produce a good result in 2008 and i don't expect it to produce a good result this time around either oh my goodness you have me very worried now let's see if we can apply sound principles to how we might get out of the mess that we're in because i i do fear that this notion of modern monetary theory has taken over and that uh, politicians have been persuaded that they can just sustain this this level of of loose money policy for a long period of time uh, for years, potentially, I don't know, maybe even decades. I think some, uh, I think some politicians are talking about not being back into budget balance for 10 years or 20 years or more. And so I'm wondering if there was a, a sensible approach based on you have to create wealth in order to be able to tax it, in order to be able to get the revenue that you need to fund your programs. I'm, I wonder, if, I wonder if, if we can talk about that for a minute, because um, I, I, I want to talk about the, the process that you go through to, to try to get the economy moving again. Um, and, uh, and one of the, some of the things that are, are standing in the way of Canada being able to generate mm -hmm. that, that uh, higher level of economic growth. You mentioned it before when you were talking about productivity and you were talking about investment. If there was a sensible approach, if, er if everyone said, stop the insanity, we're going to build our economy, what are the kind of policies that they would do? Well, a good place to start would be, I'd refer to people to, uh, there's a study by the, the IMF in 2018, and they looked at how fiscal policy, how governments handled large deficits over the last 35 years. They had all kinds of data points here. They looked at Canada in the mid-1990s was a very good example. They looked at Britain after the great financial crisis. And they had a very strong conclusion that uh, basically had implications that the whole political debate in Canada is has gotten things wrong. Uh, here, you know, the debate assumes that if we cut spending, that that will hurt the economy, and instead let's raise taxes, and that's the way to help growth. And the IMF concluded the exact opposite is, is mm -hmm. true, that uh, higher taxes are the most contractionary way of reducing the deficit, and uh, spending cuts were actually... Uh, can um, cause the economy to expand. They caused it 
expansionary austerity. Uh, and uh, that's a phrase you just don't hear very much about in political debates in this country. And they said it, uh, spending cuts especially work in the situation that Canada finds, it in now, finds itself in now when the economy is growing. That's exactly when you want to be cutting uh, government spending. The economy clearly doesn't need it. It's already growing. But they also cited the positive impact on business confidence and investment. Uh, and they said, especially if you cut back on entitlement programs, social security reforms, for example, then people become convinced that those will be permanent cuts and they will lead to tax cuts in the future. And that really encourages investment. They found that investment was the part of the economy that most responded. They found that consumption and exports, they didn't really respond to uh, spending. They had a neutral, uh, uh, spending cuts had a neutral effect on those, but spending cuts had a very positive effect on uh, business investment. And as, as we talked about earlier, you know, that has been clearly the weakest part of the Canadian economy mm. over the last 10 years. It's the one thing the Americans clearly do better than us. Their investment uh, has an innovation. You know, everybody looks at the U.S. today as the model for growth, particularly the, the, the high tech sectors in the U.S. Everybody wants Google. Everybody wants an Apple. Everybody wants an Amazon. Everybody looks at the U.S. model and says, damn, how can we have that here? And one of the ways is that the U.S. has has uh, has relied on tax cuts and higher investment to to lead their growth. Um, so you know, there's there's a lesson there for we you want to talk about long-term growth that that would be a good starting point. Investment and innovation. I love I love the term you 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 talked about there expansionary austerity. The only worry that I have, and I would say that the Americans fall victim to this too, is that it's really easy to sell tax cuts because it puts money into people's pockets immediately. But gosh, they everyone has a hard time doing the very hard spending cuts, and I, I think the Americans haven't done a particularly good job of controlling their spending. Our federal government hasn't. Our provincial governments haven't. I, I wonder if there's another argument that we need to be making about why it is that you want to cut government spending. Is there is there something that we can be thinking about about how much more productive those dollars are in the hands of private entrepreneurs than they are in the hands of government bureaucracies? Do we, can you can you shed some light on that? Well, certainly, and one of the problems with government spending is that, particularly over the last couple of decades, you know, people imagine that you know most government spending is is some sort of transfer from government to persons, and it, there's a direct benefit. Increasingly, what we've seen over the last couple of decades, though, is that the bureaucracy has become specialized. And here, I'm talking about from personal experience. This is what I lived and saw in my years and on my 36 years in Ottawa and, and something that increasingly concerned me was that civil servants have become increasingly good at latching on to a good percentage of dollars as they cross their desk on their way mm -hmm. to the ultimate beneficiary. And, um, you know, you look at the, uh, the amount of government spending now that goes to civil servants, to things like civil service pensions, to, uh, uh, and it doesn't go to, I mean, you know, the, the fiscal crisis Canada had in the mid-90s was because one-third of all taxpayer dollars were going to service debt, and it wasn't going to anything productive. And people, you know, naturally said, wow, I'm sending all this money to Ottawa, and I'm getting nothing back. It's all going to bondholders. Uh, so 
but increasingly now the problem is you're sending dollars to Ottawa and it's not coming back to, to Canadians. A lot of it is, is staying in Ottawa and is, is feeding the beast as the bureaucracy is called. So that, that would be one example of, you know, clearly the, the civil service in Ottawa, the civil service in Ottawa is the top of the food chain. They're paid more than provincial workers. They're paid more than local governments. Um, they're paid more than any other industry outside of mining, you know, our friends in oil and gas. So, uh, you know, uh, the civil service has become very good at uh, paying itself and creating layers of bureaucracy. I mean, I, again, I in my time at Citizens Canada, we talked about how we spent 40% of, of every dollar on managing ourselves. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, you know, we should be out there. We should be collecting data that Canadians can use. That's what, what Citizens Canada should be doing. And I don't mean to single them out. Citizens Canada, by the standards of Ottawa, is a, is a relatively well-run department. Uh, there's a lot of other departments, though, where uh, it, it's it's just one vast money pit. Uh, and sadly, I think I think we're going to see more growth in the bureaucracy because there's an expectation that government can solve more problems. And so that then leads to the kind of new revenue sources that we might end up having. It's sort of interesting. We, we You've given us the diagnosis of what the, the proper uh, pro, uh, uh, policies would be if we wanted to create growth and, and create this expansionary austerity. But we're hearing discussion about wealth taxes. And I I know that the uh, Broadbent Institute has been pioneering this approach that seems to have been picked up by the, the politicians that you can just have a tax on the very, very wealthy, the very, very top of the, uh, of, the, of the wealth pyramid. And you don't need to go after people's homes. You don't need to have to go after people's pensions. You're just going to go after the very rich. And so I want to talk to you about that. I think the bar uh, that they, they, they suggest is that if you've got $20 million or more, I believe they want to put a 1% tax on an annual basis on that wealth, which would generate somewhere in the order of seven to $8 billion per year. That's how the calculations, uh, pan it's actually almost uh, uh, comical that we're talking about seven to $8 billion in the context of having just spent mm -hmm. 600 billion in the last year. But it, it does sort of tell you the magnitude of the spending problem that we have. And I'm kind of interested in knowing what your response would be to that kind of wealth tax. Why not just go after the, the super wealthy? Why not just go after those who have a, a, a huge ba uh, bank account, either personally or in corporations? Yeah. Well, I have a couple of real fundamental problems with the idea of a wealth tax. Practically, it just hasn't worked. Hmm. Uh, lots of people have tried this, especially in Europe. And they've, uh, in France, for example, they gave up and they basically calculated over the decades, they spent more money trying to actually collect the money from people than they uh, actually collected. Uh, so people are, uh, it's very hard to define wealth. People are very good at moving assets around. Uh, curiously enough, people will not just stand still and allow government come up and fleece you of every dollar you have. The other problem, and my, my, my much more basic problem with the wealth tax, though, is it feeds this pernicious idea that somehow, yeah, we can just slough off. You know, we spent hundreds of billions of dollars in the pandemic. Everybody understands that's not sustainable. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. So we'll just have 
uh, a few rich people and a few rich corporations will pay for it, and the rest of us, well, will, you know, it, it won't affect us. And that's just not true. It wasn't true when we hit the debt wall in the mid-90s. Uh, we had to increase a wide range of uh, taxes on people. Any government would tell you. I mean, honestly, if if I thought the economy, if the tax revenues could work like that, I would run for office. And I would say, don't worry, I'm going to increase spending left and right. I'll give you all kinds of benefits. And I'm just going to tax a few people over here. and There won't be any economic consequences. And it's a great formula. It sounds wonderful. But it doesn't work. It's it's like we went back to earlier, this idea that if we just mail checks to everybody, that will create economic growth. Well, if, if it was that easy, every, you know, there wouldn't be any poor countries in this world. Everybody would do it. Not only is it easy, it's fun. So, uh, you know, there's something wrong with this. You know, if, if you really could dump all of your fiscal problems onto a small number of people, we would have done this a long time ago. We would have done it in the mid-90s when we hit the debt wall. You know, every government that had fiscal problems in the great financial crisis would have done this. It just doesn't work. And, but, and in fact, it, it leads to bad policy because it encourages people to think that there's an easy way out of this. There isn't. We're going to have to make some hard choices about spending. We're going to have to raise some taxes on uh, the middle class because that's where uh, the biggest pile of money is. Let's let's talk about why those wealth taxes don't work. Because I I think that uh, there is the I'll tell you what I'm worried about that um, because of what you've just identified that capital is mobile and we've we've watched stories about the Panama Papers and various tax havens. We we know that there is ability to move money around. I don't I'm not sure why it is that those who propose wealth taxes think that somehow you can just stop capital mobility and close the borders on it, but we can talk about that in a minute. But what I worry about is that given that we won't be able to generate as much as they project in their computer models, it strikes me that the old, once you've established the framework for a wealth tax, then the bar just keeps moving lower. Well, then it will be on $10 million worth of wealth. And oh, if that doesn't do it, then we'll also tax those um, uh, people who have homes and pensions. And then it seems like it would end up becoming a wealth tax on everyone. And I don't know if that's been the history. Maybe you can tell me what happens elsewhere is that when you when you say that they failed, do they end up doing that? Does it end up creeping down to include more and more people? Or do they just throw up their hands and say, we got to do something else? No, they usually end up throwing up their hands and saying, we got to do something else. Uh, they know at some point you can't lower the bar, as you mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, you can't affect homes and you can't affect pensions because the average person has those. So once you take those off the table, there's two thirds of wealth that's off the table right at the beginning. So almost by definition, you're not going to be able to raise a lot of money from this. So people pretty quickly end up saying, yeah, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to find some other way. Um, but the the other problem, though, with a, with a wealth tax is, um, you know, it's it. it creates this idea that people currently are paying their fair share. I mean, I, I just was looking at the data. The top 1% in this country paid 21% of all income taxes in this country. How is that not fair? How is that not their fair share? As Jagmeet Singh likes to talk about, that the wealthy don't pay their fair share. They pay 21% of all income taxes. Uh, the top 10% pay over half of all income taxes. Uh, so, you know, this idea that the wealthy people are engaged in massive tax evasion and tax avoidance now, it's, it's not true. Uh, but it, the real problem with wealthy people in this country is not that they're not paying their fair share, 
We don't have enough wealthy people. It's embarrassing in, that in this country to be in the top 10% of incomes, you you don't even have to earn $100,000. That's ridiculous. In the U.S., you want to get into the, the ranks of the wealthy, you have to have some serious coin. Uh, the problem in this country is we don't have enough wealthy people. It's not that wealthy people are getting away with murder. We don't have enough of them. We should be encouraging them. And instead, we're, these proposals want to penalize these people and send the message to them, get out of this country, go to the U.S., go somewhere else, but we don't want you here. Uh, that seems to be just the exact wrong message you want to be sending at this point of history. And I want to, I do want to talk about individual wealth, but before we le get deeper into individual wealth and individual wealth creation, talk to me a bit about corporations. Cause one of the uh, papers that you did has a breakdown of who owns the wealth. Here's an interesting uh, one. Let's start with the lowest government has a net worth of 268 billion dollars in your calculation that that tells you in itself that they just don't have the means to be able to do the kind of significant wealth transfers we're talking about. But people say, let's look at the corporations and your calculation is their net worth is $622 billion. And I just want to contrast that with uh, the household level of wealth, which is if I've got this right, 11 trillion, 876 billion. So it's very clear that the wealth resides with the individuals, but talk to me a little bit more about why it is, because when we do hear about wealth taxes, we either hear about taxing the 1% or we hear about making corporations pay more. Talk, just discuss a, a bit about some of the long-term implications if you take money away from that wealth-generating category of, of wealth holder. Well, those statistics you cited reflect that it's households that own the vast majority of assets in this country. Uh, it's not just homes, although obviously that's a very important part of household wealth, but households owned through their pension plans especially own most of the stocks in corporations. They own the corporations. Corporations don't own themselves. So when we talk about taxing corporations, at the end of the day, you're going to end up taxing the the pension assets and the stocks that that is held by people. Um, corporations don't, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's flesh and blood that play, pays taxes. Corporations are just paper entities. They can't pay taxes. At the end of the day, some individual, a worker, a shareholder, an investor, is going to end up bearing the burden of those taxes when you tax corporations. So people have to be aware of that. Corporate corporations don't, uh, you know, again, it, it, there's this pernicious idea that there's vast pools of money out there just waiting for governments to tax. And that's magically going to solve all our problems and solve all our problems and how the way the world works. It's well, not gonna, true. It's a fairy you're gonna, tale. You're going to tell people how the world works. So I think we need to make a robust case for the wealth creation role of, of free enterprise and, and free markets, because I think there is sort of this Marxist notion that uh, there's something wrong with the uh, enterprise of capitalism. We hear that that there are groups out there wanting to change capitalism from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, that there's something fundamentally wrong with the idea of somebody going out, generating capital, bringing it together with labor and earning a profit off of it. And, and I think that that's maybe where some of the, the pushback comes from is 
that there's not a an understanding of how vitally important that role is in a mixed economy like we have. But there is sort of this notion that if somebody has gone through the effort of doing that and they're earning a profit, they're taking it from someone. They're taking it from the workers or they're overcharging consumers. So, so, so tell us about that wealth creation role. Why is it so vital that we have individuals and entities that are willing to go out and and do this with the expectation of making a profit? Yeah. Well, the reason it's so vital is it's very easy. If you look at the long course of human history, from the birth of Jesus to about 1750, there was basically no economic growth. There was no improvement in our living standards. Uh, and you, when you live in a zero-sum society, you, you focus exclusively on distribution. The only way to get wealth was basically to steal it from the other guy. Uh, so we did it externally. We invaded people with armies. Or we had uh, internally, we had thievery or corruption or whatever. But if you know, for hundreds of years, uh, there was no economic growth. The very idea of economic mm -hmm. growth just didn't exist. The term productivity didn't appear in the Oxford Dictionary until 1950, for God's sake. So the whole idea of economic growth is very new. And then suddenly, so we have no growth for hundreds, uh, actually almost a couple thousand years. And then suddenly we have the hockey stick. And that growth blows through the roof, starting with the Industrial Revolution. And probably economists don't spend enough time talking about that and studying that. And that should be, you know, when you take that one economics course, that should be the focus of it. How come in human history, we have nothing happens for thousands of years, and then all of a sudden our standard of living blows through the roof? That has to be the number one question in economics. What happened? starting in Western Europe with the Industrial Revolution, then spreading now more recently to the Asian tigers and so on. What is the key to unlocking economic growth? And while we don't have a simple, easy answer, the, the what economists are increasingly looking at is that it's innovation and technological mm -hmm. change. It's doing things and coming up with new ways of doing things. It's not uh, you know, efficiency, that's a small contributor, but it's thinking of whole new products. It's thinking of smartphones and uh, drones and you know all these new products. The big advances in the 20th, 20th century were things like electricity, automobiles. It was these technological innovations that raised our collective standard of living, mm -hmm. extended our life expectancy and made life better for billions of people around the world. That has to be our focus. You have given me uh, probably now a reading list to go back and look at that era. I'm going to pose one more thing, and you can tell me if this had something to do with it as well, because I know that there was a movie years ago called The Corporation that went through and talked about how nasty the corporation was. And if you looked at the attributes of a corporation, it's the same attributes of a psychopath. I wonder if it's some of these innovative corporate structures, though, and some of the development of people being able to come together and pool their money and own shares. And did that, did that have something to do with creating more avenues for entrepreneurs to get their ideas funded and for innovation to occur? Or maybe the corporate model has been around a long time. I just don't know the history of it that well, but I wondered if, the, if there was yeah. something to that too. Well, the limited liability corporation did come along at a, about the beginning of the, the start of the Industrial Revolution. Hmm. By the way, debt was not the new way. Debt has been around forever. Okay. Uh, so there was nothing new about debt. 
but uh, so certainly equity financing of limited liability corporations certainly help. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it, the most important thing is uh, at some point corporations, you know, the most important corporations in your economy are the small ones, the tigers, or actually they're called gazelles in the economic language. Uh, small companies, 100, 200 employees who suddenly overnight explode and become huge corporations. We saw this happen with, with Apple, with Facebook, with Amazon. Uh, that's what drives economic growth. S small companies going through intense, explosive periods of growth. Once they mature, once they become the size of Walmart, they actually become a bit of a dead weight on, on the economy. So, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want a government policies that favor incumbents, that uh, large corporations to maintain their their position. That becomes, that in, just encourages rent seeking and, and stagnation at some point. You want to constantly allow the economy to renew itself, to have the next, that you want to be creating the next Amazon, um, uh, not, not entrenching the interests of the current Amazon. That's that, the secret to long-term growth. That, 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 I think, then probably creates a pathway for a whole variety of government policies that should be in place if you're going to, to try to foster growth there. We, we can may, perhaps talk about that. But let's continue talking about wealth creation because we've talked about um, it at the one end of how it is entrepreneurs and large corporations create a large amount of wealth. Let's go back to the other end because we, we spend a lot of time talking about policies to give more money from the rich, give to the poor. And I, I'm wondering uh, if that is because if that is because cultural appetite for equality that we think everybody should be more fair and equal, or mm. is it that we're genuinely trying to eliminate poverty or address or address poverty? How, how, what is what is your perspective on that? Well, that goes back to, you know, you have to begin to question is do Canadians understand how capitalism works? Mm. That there are going to be winners and losers. There's going to be unequal outcomes. And if you're not ready to accept that, then you're, you're not ready for capitalism. Um, and I, I'm a little worried that uh, and losers, that we're bailing everybody out, that we won't uh, allow any firms to fail. Um, you know, not only do we, to fix that, you have to entrench, you basically have to reward losers, and then you start creating all kinds of problems with the incentives and in, in the structure of your economy. So, you know, I wouldn't want to exaggerate that, but, you know, over the, especially over the last 10 years, I'm becoming concerned that, um, you know, Canadians may not completely understand. Americans seem to have a lot better attitudes, for example, to uh, risk. Um, to um, to taking chances, uh, you know, there's an upside and a downside to that, as we've seen in the pandemic. Uh, you can look at the American uh, attitude to vaccines and go, this is crazy. Uh, but on the other hand, it's that same rebelliousness that also feeds their ability to innovate. Uh, so, you know, you, you can't, Canadians have to recognize that you have to take the good with the bad in this. And there's not something that's going to produce ideal outcomes across the board. 
I wonder if we're beginning to get that because it's it's fascinating to me that we seem to understand how important creative destruction is in the tech world. I still find it so amazing that all the Apple iPhone and iPad products have really only been on the market for a, a decade or so. But you also look at the incredible disruption that happened with an app like Airbnb and the impact it's had on the traditional hotel business or Uber and the traditional impact it's had on the taxi business. So it seems like we're kind of selective. I mean, I take your point, especially during this the the, the COVID spending, that there has been this kind of expectation that no business should be allowed to fail. And I wonder if that's going to carry on. But at the same time, there is no way to have all of those wonderful new apps and programs and services w without it uh, replacing something that already exists. Do, do, you, do you think people embrace that? Or do you think that there's a, a little bit of ambivalence about it? Oh, I think there's growing ambivalence. I mean, here in Ottawa, for example, I, I lived through the, the big tech bubble when Nortel and JDS Uniface were household names across the country. I mean, I remember people in Monday Night Football in the US were talking about JDS, for God's sake. Uh, and you know, that, that bubble burst very quickly and within a couple of years, they were gone from mm -hmm. uh, pretty much the, the landscape here in Ottawa. And obviously, you know, a, that affected a lot of people here in Ottawa. Uh, yet at the end of the day, you know, we it, it wasn't the end of this city and it, it wasn't the end of tech industry here. Uh, now we have Shopify here based in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people have to get used to the fact that, uh, you know, firms, we just talked about earlier that firms aren't real people. They're, they're, they just exist on paper. And when JDS and Nortel stop existing on paper, what happens to the people, the flesh and blood of these uh, in these corporations? Well, they go and work somewhere else. Uh, they they don't just roll over and die. And and I'm sure some of them are working at Shopify today. And that's the nature of creative destruction. And um, you know we um, you know we it's it's very much by allowing some firms to die that you create you know, that you free up the resources, the capital, the labor, the manpower. Uh, as well as creating the drive for innovation that that leads to the the creation of the next firm. I wonder if there's maybe going to be more of an appetite for that now that because I think there's generational issues that there there once was a time that you could get a job and work at a corporation and have internal promotions and stay at that same company or in that same occupation for life. But I I bet if you asked young people coming out of high school or university now, is that your aspiration to find that one job and never work anywhere else? I, I bet they would they would look at you like you were bananas, that there's there's just no expectation that you're going to have a job for life. And maybe that's positive. Maybe that lends itself to people understanding that they also need to have renewal every three to five to, to 10 years. And that that kind of renewal only comes if there's new opportunities. Do, do you think do you think there might be some, some is there some way to measure that? This uh, growing appetite that there that there might be to that to that kind of change or to job movement or mm -hmm. to some some recognition that that to this kind of creative destruction is positive yeah no and I, I am trying to keep my eye on that there are a couple of things you can look at you can look at uh, people's values and attitudes for example you knew france was cooked in the mid 90s when there was a opinion poll that showed that 70 percent of young people wanted to work for government Huh. Uh, that 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 they aspired. That's all they wanted was the steady job, the guaranteed pension. That was the best they could think of. As I say, you you knew France was dead when that happened. That capitalism was not going to survive long, and 
in in an environment like that. Now it's not that, so we're not at that point yet, um, but it has to be, you know, you can also look at the rate at which uh, new firms are being born, for example. Since it's Canada publishes something called the entry rate, uh, I, I'm uh, incorporating it into a, a study that's about to come out from the Fraser Institute. And unfortunately it shows a very uh, steady, slow decline in the interest rate. So I don't think there's any sign there anyways that young people are embracing um, the, the instability and are, are willing to form uh, their own firms. Um, but, you know, we'll see. The one good thing about this pandemic might be that it did sweep away a lot of the deadwood. A lot of, of uh, firms did go under and there has been some uptick in firm entry. Uh, it remains to be seen. That could just be old firms going bankrupt and being reborn, you know, de declaring their assets dead and gone and the same business essentially being reborn under a different name. If that's going on, then there's no net business creation. Uh, but if there is some cleaning out of the deadwood and some uh, uh, renewal of the landscape and we're getting some young people in and creating new firms, that would be a positive sign. But uh, that's just speculate. That's perhaps more of a hope than, uh, than uh, a fact on my part. I would love to see a survey asking young people what their dream job is to see how many would now say in Canada that working for government and having a guaranteed pension is the is the number one aspiration. That would be a really interesting kind of flashpoint to see where where the public yeah. is at. You know, I, I must tell you, I've been really astonished that uh, in my home province of Alberta, that there's this kind of burgeoning new young group of of entrepreneurs in the tech field it's in a group called Startup TNT. And the attitude is really interesting among that sort of tech sector that they want to build a team, build an app, three to five years, get out and do something new. And to me, that's sort of the very heart of what entrepreneurship is and what creative destruction is. And it, it seems like that that does seem to, to, um, to exist in the tech sector. I wonder if it exists in any other sector or if there's any other way yeah. to measure that. But I, I put that on your radar because that seems to be a, another sort of interesting growing area that has that is attracting young people in a way that has that has me feeling fairly optimistic. Well, and just don't get too carried away with your Alberta roots there. I mean, I agree. <laughs> Alberta is the entrepreneurial heart of Canada. I wrote a paper earlier this year for the uh, University of Calgary where I talked about how uh, entrepreneurship fares better. You know, Alberta is has more of those values than any other part of the country. However, the opposite is, you know, you look at how Canada and the U.S. reacted during the pandemic. And one of the things we did, for example, was you remember we had the Atlantic bubble. We closed down our borders with each other uh, very much too easily. And just as we closed uh, raised tariff barriers to internal trade much too easily. Both of these practices are unheard of in the United States. Hmm. So I just be aware of that. Yes, there are some parts of the economy uh, uh, of the country that are more disposed to this, but there's large parts of the economy to uh, especially in Eastern Canada that are, um, you know, are much more, their reflexive solution to things is to close borders, barriers uh, and uh, protect entrenched interests rather than welcoming change and dynamism. It's, a, it's such a good point. I hope we don't see more of that, although I, I fear we will. We'll have to see in the months ahead whether 
these kinds of uh, border restrictions and travel restrictions end up creating those kinds of disruptions. But but I know that, you know, it's funny, I thought I was going to start with this question to you, but I'm glad that we've talked about wealth creation and entrepreneurship and aspirations before we talk about minimum wage, because minimum wage increases really were at the forefront a number of years ago, as everyone was talking about a living wage and what that wage rate should be. And I, I think Alberta led the country in going up to a $15 per hour minimum wage. But it's, it's interesting to me in, in light of the conversation we've just had, I, I don't know that anybody expects that minimum wage is going to be where they stop and land and don't move from. I don't know that anybody aspires to be a minimum wage earner for their entire lives or be in a job that only pays minimum wage for their entire lives. But the way policymakers talk about minimum wage, it's almost like they feel like that is the dead end, that anyone yeah. who has a minimum wage job, that's it. They're stuck there. And we have to make sure that we're constantly increasing it. Otherwise, they're not going to increase their level of wealth. And it seems to me there's something wrong with that argument. And we're gonna you're going to tell me what's wrong with that argument. What, yeah. what is... What is a minimum wage supposed to do? What, what, or <laughs> I know that you probably have a different view. What do they say a minimum wage policy is supposed to do? Why do they propose it? Well, the idea, of course, is to eliminate poverty. Uh, poverty. Uh, if poverty is caused by low wages, then if we get rid of low wages, we'll get rid of poverty. And, of course, it doesn't work like that. Um, Low wages reflect that people aren't very productive. If you want to make people richer, raise their productivity. Um, we're seeing, for example, in the pandemic, we're, we're seeing a lot of labor shortages. You know, a lot of there was a lot of talk in the pandemic about how a lot of the job losses were in the low wage sectors, you know, restaurants, hotels, and so on. And a lot of those workers either retired or they left the industry. And now we're seeing a lot of upward pressure on wages in those industries. Uh, because of shortages. That's, mm. you know, that's how you raise wages. Let the market system raise it. But if you artificially impose high wages on people, what you're going to end up with is, uh, yes, people who keep their jobs are going to have a higher wage, but a lot of people won't have jobs. And I'm sure you, uh, myself, and I'm sure you, we started out at minimum wage. That was, I was just happy when I was in high school and university, I was happy to have a job. I was happy to, it allowed me to gain confidence. Oh, somebody will actually pay me. I have some worth. I have something I can put on my CV. I can show the next employer I actually showed up for my job um, and, you know, showed some basic skills. So it's an entry point. Most minimum wage jobs are entry points, mostly held by young people. The vast majority actually held by students. Uh, it's not a job that only something like two or three percent of, of minimum wage holders are the primary breadwinner. So, you know, you're not going to eliminate poverty. What you're basically going to do is freeze out a lot of people from getting that first toehold in the labor market that's so important. And that's going to create problems down the road, problems down the road. I want you to, to I want to sort of bring to the arguments that I've heard from minimum wage and hear what your counter to them is, because I think there is this idea that if government doesn't step in and protect vulnerable workers by having a minimum wage, they will just simply be exploited and they'll work, they'll be offered a, a wage that is well below what uh, they ought to be paid. And they're, they're, and without government intervention, then you're going to end up causing harm, whether it's to new Canadians or um, temporary foreign workers 
or women or the youth. So how, how do you protect that group? I mean, it, it, shouldn't there be at least some kind of floor to make sure that, that they're, they're not being exploited? Well, the way our society, the way Canada thinks today, that's what you're led to believe. Very few people realize that lots of progressive countries in this world, especially in Europe, don't have a minimum wage. Germany doesn't have one. Um, the Scandinavian countries didn't have one. It, it, the minimum wage was created, first began in the United States. It was under Roosevelt as part of the New Deal. And when he brought in all these social spending programs, he had to bring in the Southern Democrats. And the Southern Democrats were very conservative people. And they basically said, okay, well, um, you know, we'll, we'll bring in a minimum wage, but we want a minimum wage because we want to exclude people. We want to exclude women. We want to exclude blacks. We don't want them to get a toehold in the labor market. If you really want to understand a policy, go back to its origins. What was it intended to do? The minimum wage was designed to be an exclusionary uh, device in the labor market. It was meant to keep certain people down and out. Uh, it was not meant to help a broad range of people. And that remains the case today. It excludes young people from getting a toll in the labor market. It's not an inclusive device. It costs people jobs. There are lots of other ways, uh, primarily, by the way, creating a strong economy uh, in which, uh, for example, we've seen in recent years, uh, companies like Walmart voluntarily move to a $15 uh, uh, an hour minimum wage. That's the way you want to accomplish it. Create an economy so good that, a co that workers are in such demand that, a, that it's in companies' own interest to raise wages. Uh, that's the way to go about it. But mandatory, trying to impose mm -hmm. this on companies that can't afford it, you're actually going to get perverse reactions. You'll get people cutting back on other benefits like pension benefits or health benefits, or they'll cut back on employment and you, you'll end up actually hurting the very people you wanted to help. It's, it's, I think people are going to have um, a, 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 bit of, a, a bit of disconnect from what you just said, because I think a lot of people who push forward on minimum wage policies think that they're compassionate and they're doing it to help those who are at the low end of the income scale. And it, it, no, understanding that the history that it's actually exclusionary is pro it's probably a very challenging concept to people. But let me put something on the table, just to reinforce what you said, is that because I own a restaurant and it's $15 minimum wage. And so when I have a choice of do I hire another cook who has skills for $18 an hour or do I hire a young person to just bust tables um, for $15 an hour, I would I would I would prefer I, you know it's just the way it is you you'd prefer to go for the the person who has higher higher skills is that is that the dynamic that plays out when when you put a wage that is too high relative to what the the worker is able to produce oh very much so that um, you know we, I should, we've all seen when we go to fast food restaurants that uh, you know increasingly they're automated yeah. um they're, that's the first reaction of, of businesses when they're they're faced with these types of situations. If a worker is being paid more than they're worth to the company, if a company keeps doing that, at some point they're going to go bankrupt. You cannot pay people more than they're worth than they produce for you. Uh, so firms again don't just quietly sit there and go bankrupt. They they look around and say, well, okay, uh, how are we going to deal with this? Well, automation, uh, and you know. 
it's, it's interesting that a lot of these same people who worry about minimum wage and want to improve people's, they're this very same people who think that jobs are going to be automated and we're all going to lose our jobs to automation anyways. Well, they don't seem to realize there's a connection between the two. The very actions and policies you're proposing are accelerating the technological change mm. that you're afraid of. That's remarkable. What is the consequence of not getting that entry-level job? You sort of connected something to me from one of the other works that you do when we need we need higher workforce participation rate. We need more workers earning higher wages if we're going to address some of the things we were talking about earlier of this, this shortfall that we have in government revenues. And yet it is interesting to me to see how many young people are unemployed or underemployed or how many have kind of extended their their youth uh, through going to um, through going to um, don't really get into the workforce full time at a high paying job until much later. I think the average trades um, apprentice is now 27 years old. And I think those who've finished a couple of degrees, maybe onto a master's, they probably don't get into the workforce until their 30s. I'm just trying to understand the, the consequences of not giving young people that entry-level job is that is that how it's manifesting is that they say well what the heck i may as well keep on going to school if i can't get work yeah two things we've seen in the data one is um particularly in those provinces where there were sharp minimum wage increases like alberta and ontario we we saw sharp declines in the percentage of young people who held a job and that seems to be due to due to two things one is that their demand for them went down from the employer but at the same time, a lot of the youth would just left the labor force. And that, that's really concerning. Uh, as we talked about, you know, it's important to have that first job, to get that experience, to build up a CV. It helps your transition into the permanent labor force when you, uh, uh, when you graduate from university. The other thing that's, and this is very concerning, is we've seen an increasing proportion of young people who aren't doing anything. As this guy goes out, they aren't in the labor force, they aren't in school, they aren't getting training. Uh, they seem to be sitting in mom's basement. Uh, this is not good, especially for young men. You do not want uh, large numbers of these people lying around with way too much time on their hands and not doing anything. This is a recipe for trouble. Um, so, so you're just creating other social problems in the longer term. I, I think you're right. And we should be, I, I'm, I'm concerned about that too. And how you catch up young people, if they do have that delay in getting to the workforce, is there, is there a different type of policy that we should be approaching them when it comes to stim? If we had a, if we looked at the minimum wage as being the entry level to give that person a start, whether it's a, uh, a young mother coming back into the workforce after a break because she's had kids or whether it's a young person and it's their first job or whether it's a new Canadian and they're getting a toehold in the market. What what would be a different approach to take if we framed it as around, we want to make sure that we give people that first opportunity? Yeah. Well, I'm going to really change the tone of the conversation here. And I'm going to say, we have to perhaps stop thinking in terms of government policies that every problem needs a government response and what should we do about this and what should we be doing about that. What we really want to be doing is creating a, a society where we value innovation, where people believe when they wake up in the morning, they're excited that they have a chance to do things, to create things, where they, they, they have value in themselves. 
uh, where, you know, uh, Edmund Phelps talks a lot about this in a book that has had a lot of influence in me the last couple of years called Dynamism. And that's what you want to create. You want to create a society uh, where people are looking to take chances, to look where they believe there's opportunity. And when people believe, stop believing that, when the best that you can promise a young person is, well, you might get a government job in a bureaucracy and you can sit at a desk like a drone for the next 30 years of your life. No wonder the kid's sitting in the mom's basement and can't be bothered getting up in the morning. That's not a very exciting prospect. Uh, so, you know, a lot of this comes back to how do we create a society that that in, in which this this dynamism takes hold? Do you know what I think it is? And because you've spent your career measuring statistics, I think the real problem is our obsession with measuring people's equality based on their income, whether you're in the first quartile, quintile of income or the top quintile of income. Because I, I, I talk with entrepreneurs all the time in the role that I'm in. And one person put it to me incredibly well. He's a serial entrepreneur, made tons of businesses, and he has a, a doctor friend. And he said, there's, there's often a tension between he and his doctor friend because his doctor friend is very smart, went through, got lots of schooling. But there's because the doctor has to do everything himself, there's a limit to how much uh, he can earn because there's a limit to the number of hours in the day. So there's sort of an upper limit on wage income. And even it may be in the order of four or five, six hundred thousand dollars for the best and top doctors and lawyers. But an entrepreneur, the sky's the limit. Just look at Jeff Bezos or <laughs> look at look at yeah. Elon Musk. And so I think that that's a really interesting is that if we keep on measuring and thinking that the only way people are going to get wealthy is based on the income that they earn, it kind of confines our conversation and we don't end up having the conversation you think we should have, which is one about dynamism. But I don't know what we should be measuring um, if not income because income differentials seem to be the bread and butter of what politicians talk about, what policymakers talk about, what StatsCan measures. Why is it that there is that obsession with income? Well, I think it, there's an historical bias in economics. And again, going back to something we talked about a, a, quite a while ago, for the longest time, there was the, the idea of economic growth just didn't exist. So the only thing that did exist was redistribution. So a lot of the thinking and, and uh, you know, even the uh, you know, biblical phrases about the economy assume that there's, it's a zero-sum game and there's only inequality and redistribution is the only thing to talk about. The idea that you could have sustained technical progress over long periods of time, just, you know, it's just in, in some sense, it's just entering into the conversation in the last 0.01% literally of human existence. So, you know, this is sort of a new, very new tool for us and it's something we have to get used to. But clearly, some societies have, are adapting to this better than others. And I'm just a little worried that Canada used to be one of those societies mm. where we did have a lot of creative destruction and we did have a lot of uh, entrepreneurship and we did we were world leaders in economic growth. And we seem to be slipping out of the North American model. where We seem to be drifting into the European sclerosis, corporatism view of the world that, oh, well, let's not worry about growth. We'll just worry about income distribution and, uh, you know, we'll all just work in bureaucracies and we won't have a lot of dynamism in our economy. And I think it's not just that that would produce a less rich society. 
but it would produce less good human beings, less interesting human beings. The real point of economic growth is not to make people rich. That's just a happy side benefit for economists. It creates better people. That's what we're aiming for. I love what you're saying because it it does lend itself to thinking that we should measure things differently and we should be giving different messages to young people as well because I think we've kind of developed a safety culture and it's nice and safe to go and work for somebody and know that you're going to be taken care of for life. You can't be fired. You're going to have a pension. You don't need to worry about anything. But maybe the message needs to be a little bit different. Maybe the way we talk about minimum wage is that's your toehold to enter the market. And then there's skills development that allows you to get a promotion. And then eventually you know enough that you might decide to start your own company and start employing people. And once you've done that, then you can expand out. I don't know that entrepreneurship is really something that we encourage everyone to aspire to. But why wouldn't we? Why shouldn't we have a have a conversation about everybody one day at some point in their career being a, a wealth creator and a job creator. Does anyone have that, that kind of approach? I mean, is there some place that we should look where that is more embedded as a way of seeing what kind of policies would stimulate that? Yeah, no, it, well, there's not a lot of talk about but it, but there's some. And I would agree with uh, Kevin Lynch, who used to be the, the top civil servant in this country, and like me, who made a transition from the public sector to the private sector, talked about how you can teach entrepreneurial uh, skills. This is something we can teach in school. We can teach it in high school. Uh, hmm. But it goes back to a basic mindset. And I don't think we're teaching it now. I think, in fact, we're teaching dependency. We're teaching be risk adverse. Uh, you know, when you compare the values, particularly of young people in Canada and the U.S., these are the differences that come out. And one reason why the U.S. is is innovating and pulling away from us but as long as it's something that can be, it's still, we can turn that boat around. Uh, but we're going to have to do it by changing the conversation, changing the way we talk to each other. It's not just about government policies. It's the way we talk to each other. And especially it's the way we talk to young people at home and in schools. You know, we've, we've, we've always talked about term limits on politicians. Maybe we should talk about term limits on working for a government bureaucracy that the maximum you're ever going to ever be able to work it for if you just get a government job is 10 years and then you got to get out and do something else. I know that's probably impractical to think, but it, but there yeah. is something about trying to change the way people perceive different roles. I look at public service as genuine service that you're supposed to go there for a period of time, serve the public, and then hopefully learn enough that you can go on and do yeah. something else. But it, it seems like we're that's one of the problems yeah. that we have in the growth in the in the government and public sector is it's not growth so that they can create dynamism and how public services are delivered. It's, it goes back to this risk aversion and this, and the safety notion. And I don't know how, can it start there? Do you think you can get a transformation by starting a different type of approach in a bureaucracy? Or is that kind of the last place that, that we should be looking at to try to create that dynamism? Yeah. Oh, no, it's definitely possible. I, I remember I talked with, uh, after I left Assistance Canada, I bumped into uh, my former boss, the chief statistician of Canada, and we talked about how it was necessary uh, for a large organization like that to go through a major crisis. I mean, shake the place to its foundations every 10 years. Uh, we did this with uh, Moroni came in and our budget was slashed by 33%. We had to completely rethink how we did everything. Surveys, 
cost recovery. We set up publications. We made them make money. We brought in entrepreneurial ways of thinking. Um, then we went through a, a major change 10 years later. We went through a vast expansion. Uh, and then we went through the, the turmoil of the census. All of these, in some sense, were good because it shook people. It stopped people from being complacent. Anyway, the point is we agreed that all of these things, whether they're negative or positive shocks, really doesn't matter. It was important they went through shocks because otherwise people just go in, to go to their desk every day, turn their brains off and go to sleep. And uh, uh, so the point is you can definitely create uh, a culture for uh, perhaps not entrepreneurship, but for innovation and change, even in a bureaucracy. It's so interesting, creative destruction. I guess it, it applies as equally to the public service and public delivery of services as it does to the private sector. I'm going to have to do a bit more reading on that. Has anyone actually applied that kind of notion of creative destruction to the public sector? And is there any, any, any guidance you can point us to in doing more research on that? Off the top of my head, no. I'm, hmm. uh, uh, but I'm certainly aware that you know, there's always been an awareness in senior management levels that uh, in the civil service that you have to shake things up. Huh. Uh, but the actual idea, I, I suppose there is some with these sunset clauses that began with Jimmy Carter, this idea that, you know, we will force agencies to go out of business after, you know, five or 10 years or whatever, unless somebody actually takes the initiative to renew them. Uh, I suppose something like that could work. I love that idea. Here's where I remain gravely concerned, it went, especially when we looked at the relative growth in job creation in the public sector versus the private sector. And you've talked about some of the features of a, a bureaucracy where you don't necessarily have innovation and getting maximum value. I'm worried that we've got, we're, we're, we're taking uh, workers out of the private sector where they're needed <laughs> to create more of this innovation and wealth creation in order to continue to to generate the kind of revenues that governments need to implement their programs. And you, you've you identified some problem areas that you've looked at. We talked about youth unemployment and particularly young men. But but tell us what you've seen with the participation rate in, in the economy and whether that is giving us some some cause for alarm or concern. Um, when, when you look at the stats, because I, I know you've done some work about how we're, we're just not going to be able to sustain the level of government spending without bringing um, more new Canadians and immigration levels in. Why do you come to that conclusion? What, what's happening in our labor market that makes you believe we just don't have enough wealth creators or job creators to, to generate the, the revenue governments need? Well, we've been seeing the uh, the aging of the labor force. It's clearly been depressing the participation rate in this country uh, for about 10 years now. Uh, that's largely been offset by increased immigration. Uh, but, you know, again, we saw during the pandemic, that was one of the problems. We, uh, the pandemic ended up, you know, for all the talk about the, uh, the impacts on youth and the C-session and all these things, the one clear impact of the pandemic of the labor market was it accelerated the retirement of older people. Huh. Um, and the, the other obvious effect was it dramatically slowed immigration because, you know, obviously borders were closed. So uh, it, it kind of froze the labor market. Um, and that's never a good thing. I mean, a dynamic labor market, it, the trick of the labor market is always getting the right people in the right jobs in the right place. 
So, you know, you want people moving around. You want a certain level of churn, of people moving mm -hmm. between companies, of people moving between regions, and even people moving between countries. All of this is good uh, for creative destruction, for increasing productivity in the longer term. And we kind of froze that. Everything was kind of frozen in place during the pandemic. Uh, it's going to be a real challenge to governments to get that started again. You know, it has to be a real concern that a lot of these, a lot of these uh, stasis that we created risk becoming permanent, and people will stay in their town or stay in their industry. Mm -hmm. They'll become more afraid of the future. They won't take a chance. They won't leave for another job, uh, and will become ever more risk adverse. Not only would that hurt the labor market, it would hurt our ability to to take chances to innovate in the longer term. So uh, that's, you know, that's going to be a real concern coming out of the pandemic. The, the solutions to that are not obvious. What are this? What are the numbers? What are the statistics we should be looking at to see whether or not we're going to have a problem? I've always found it interesting that even at Alberta's worst times, and we've had some pretty bad times in Alberta going back to, to 2014, sort of always shocked me that there's such a high workforce particip participation rate. And then you also look at average weekly earnings. It seems like Alberta continues to have high average weekly earnings compared to, to the rest of the country. So those are two things that I look at, um, and I'll look at the trends on, on both as we go forward. But what are some of the other things that you would look at to see whether or not we're, we're going to end up with an ongoing problem of perhaps diminished work effort and, uh, and lower participation? Well, churn. Uh, churn, by that I mean entry and exit. You can look at that within the labor market. It's quite easy to look at how many people are being hired, how many people are quitting, how many people in, uh, got laid off. You know, these, these, these measures of how much turnover is there occurring or are people freezing and locking into place? As we talked about, you can look at exactly the same variables in the business community. How many new firms are being born? How many are exiting? Um so you want to look at these measures of dynamism in an economy. You're quite worried. We spend way too much time looking at the final net result. What is total employment? What is total income? Just as important and probably more important to predicting where employment and GDP are going the longer term is what's the churn? What's the turnover happening underneath this? Are we creating um, a society that's embracing change or are we increasingly resistant to change? That's really what's going to determine our economic growth in the longer term. What's your perspective on what has been called this fourth industrial revolution? Because I think when Barack Obama was president, that's one of the things that he was concerned about is that technological jobs were going to replace workers. I think that's one part and parcel of what we're hearing um, some of the anxiety mm -hmm. of political leaders talking about. And yet when I look back on history, it does seem to me that technological innovation, it's not obvious to me that it results in fewer jobs. It does It does seem to me like it creates far more jobs than, than it ends up killing, but, but maybe there's something different this time. Is there something different? If you combine this problem that we have of um, sort of disillusion, no uh, difficulty uh, entering the workforce for the younger, the younger generation, and then on, on top of that, the 
dependency that we're beginning to see on, on people getting government transfers. Um, is it the case that perhaps technological change is a consequence of people of us not being able to find enough workers? And is it necessarily a bad thing? If you end up having a worker, when you give them more technology, hire more machine, get more machinery and equipment, maybe they become more productive and they get higher wages. So I'm sort of torn about how to how to interpret what I'm seeing and, and the concerns about fourth industrial revolution, which is why I'm interested in your take on it. Yeah. Well, I've spent a lot of time studying history. My background was studying business cycles. The most dangerous phrase in, in the study of financial markets and business cycles and recessions is this time is different. Every time, the minute you hear that, sell everything, get out of the market, because you know a crash is coming. Uh, and it's exactly the same thing is held for technological innovation. I cannot tell you how. It's, it's basically every 10 years, there's a major scare going back to the early 19th century that this time is different. We're all going to lose our jobs. The robots, the machines are going to take over, and that's going to be it. It's always been wrong in the past. So if something's always been wrong in the past, I'm tempted to believe it's probably 99% going to be wrong in the future. And I think there's a lot to support that this time around. Yes, the technological change, some jobs, manufacturing jobs have been disappearing since the 1970s. There's nothing new there about robots and so on taking over in factories. That's been going on for a long time. But we've always created services jobs. Now we're creating jobs. Uh, sorry, we're starting to lose jobs. Technology, uh, artificial intelligence and so on may be able to automate some services jobs, like maybe an accountant you won't need anymore. Um, but at the same time, what we're seeing is jobs are popping up, are proliferating in areas where machines can't replace them, where there's person-to-person -person contact, um, psychological counseling, and you know, healthcare, and all these types of things. So it seems that uh, yes, technological change. Some jobs will always be disappearing be disappearing that's part of creative destruction uh, that's part of innovation but we always find a use for human beings somewhere else because there are certain things uh, skills humans have whether it's tactile skins we can do little things with our fingers that machines can't do or simply empathy and, and our ability to relate to other human beings no machine will ever be able to create to replace that uh, if the supply you know relative wages may change but I, I don't worry that uh, that machines are ever going to replace human beings. Do, is there a, a a public policy solution or a proposal that would that that would fit with this increase in technology, increase in um, AI, machine learning? Because I, I think Bill Gates has suggested that we need to have a robot tax or have have additional. Yeah taxation, if, there, if, if we believe that robots are going to replace human beings, does that mean that we need to look at new and innovative ways of taxing yeah. technology and taxing machinery? Or um, are there concerns about doing that? Does that, does that end yeah. up arresting the, the very dynamism that we've been talking about uh, this, this entire interview? Yeah. I don't know what you would tell. I would agree if we, if we ever did get to the point and my position in this has always been, I'm not willing to consider a guaranteed annual income until I see the whites of their eyes of job loss. When I really, because right now it's a projection about the future. And given that all these projections about the future have always been wrong in the past, there's no way I'm implementing a major new social policy based on a forecast that has always proved to be unreliable. 
But if we do start seeing technological unemployment, if employment rates really do start going down, yeah, of course, we're going to have to support people. You know, what are you going to tax? I don't know. The income of those people who are continue to have jobs. Do you tax the robots, the owners of the robots? I don't know. We'll worry about that when the exact form of technological change arrives, if it ever arrives. But I'm very skeptical that it ever arrives. But I do agree. I'm keeping in the back pocket. I am willing to consider a guaranteed annual income if things get to that point. But it's got to happen first. Uh, don't tell me that it's a forecast and you're worried this is going to happen and we better bring in this policy now because what happens if it doesn't happen and we're going to there's going to be all kinds of negative side effects of this policy. Well, that's such a good point because if nothing else, the government demonstrated that they can create a guaranteed income okay. very quickly when the when the need arises. So I, I guess I, I know that the, the solutions are not easy, but I wonder if you do have some some policies that you're looking at to solve this conundrum that we have, that we've got a, a, a growing need or certainly growing demand for more government spending, a growing appetite for more government spending at a time that we've got a shrinking labor force because of some of the dynamics that we talked about, people retiring, young people not entering into those jobs as rapidly. We've got uh, some restrictions now on new Canadians coming to Canada. This this creates kind of a perfect storm of problems for policymakers. And is there, there's never an easy way out of it. The sense that I, I got from you is that you kind of uh, like to do the cleanup after, or <laughs> that you may just have to let things get to a point where something happens, and then we 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 develop the policy out of it. But is there a way to get a? I guess the term used to be soft landing. If we know something is happening, that we've got we've got a, a dynamic here that we're going to face some some major crunch. Do, is there is there anything that can be done to avoid it or soften it? I think that we can anticipate the solution to all of these problems. Not through policy, but through how we talk to each other. Hmm. Uh, that's something that economists just seem to be beginning to realize. It goes back to, you know, how do you create innovation and research and development? And for decades, we've been developing these little micro policies that target this with a subsidy to that and a, um, you know, some equalization formula for a province here and there. And it just hasn't worked. And what economists are beginning to realize is it comes back to values. Values. What do we talk about amongst ourselves and to our young people? Well, do we talk about entrepreneurship as a option for, as a viable option for you in the future? Or are you planning a future as a drone in a bureaucracy somewhere? That's really what it comes down to. And we don't spend enough time talking about these values, about dynamism, uh, and creating this uh, um, a society in, that values these things. We seem to be getting away from that. One, there may be an opportunity here with the pandemic to begin to change that conversation. That's what interests me the most. Well, I'm glad we got the conversation started here today. Thank you so much for your time today. I know that you've written on a great variety of topics. We will have to have you back again, but I sure appreciate the conversation. My pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you, Daniel. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. 
and to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit fraserforum.org. 